Welcome to episode 64 of this Search with Canda podcast, recorded on Friday the 5th of June 2020, and it really is episode 64 this time. My name is Mark Williams-Cook, and today we're going to be joined by James Brockbank, the Managing Director of Digital Loft. James, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to join with us. Uh, do you want to give a little short introduction to kind of who you are and Digital Loft and what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm James Brockbank, Managing Director and Founder of a digital PR and SEO agency based up north called Digital Loft. We work with clients who essentially want to build great links through digital PR tactics and support their SEO and organic search growth. I mean, I founded the agency, officially founded the agency uh, just over six years ago. Um, I actually pretty much founded the agency about seven and a half years ago. Uh, I did a sort of year and a half freelancing before that. The agency is officially six, just over six years old. And yeah, in that time, we've uh, we've done some fantastic work with a great a great range of clients and spent six years building up a, a really great digital PR offering. That sounds very polished. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. I was checking out the site and it was saying it'd been going sort of six years and then I, I saw it, you know, you've been there longer on your, your LinkedIn. So today uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about link buildings. I've called this episode the state of link building in 2020. And right. this, uh, you know, I've said link building. And I mean, I know we use terms like link acquisition, outreach, digital PR. Um, I'm just going to use the kind of base term link building to cover all yeah, that. Yeah, good with me. Um, we've had we've spoken to previous people. We've had uh, some people come do search Nord talks about link building, link acquisitions. We've had Jack Banfield from Verve talking about outreach. Lexi Mills uh, talking about digital PR. So really pleased um, you could join us because I've seen a lot of your work actually um, that you put out there, and it's it's definitely one of the uh, agencies I'm more impressed with in terms of the kind of content work. Yeah, that's great doing. to hear. So, um, it does it does get sent around our teams internally to say, look at this. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! Great um, to hear. Great to hear. So, what really kicked off the idea for talking about this is um, I'm sure you've seen the kind of Twitter conversations about SEM Rush and their guest posting service. I uh, yes, I have indeed. Yes. You caught yeah. that. So who hasn't? Anyone, who hasn't? Yeah. So maybe some people. So for anyone uh kind of listening that hasn't encountered this, I'll just give you a very, very short background, uh, which is that the uh, well SEM Rush who are best known for their uh tool, SEM Rush were offering a marketplace service where they were essentially allowing you to pay for articles they were then placing on websites to get backlinks. So SEM Rush's clarification of what they were doing was um, we create this unique article and place a backlink to your URL as to with other content like, this is their tweet, (laughs) like research type or so on to be as natural as possible. So what we offer is absolutely legal white hat link building tactic. Here is how it works. And they provide a link. And the, I think what drew a lot of attention to this is John Mueller from Google just replied to this tweet and very, 
Black and White just said, that's an unnatural link, the kind the web spam team might take action on. Make sure the links use rel nofollow or rel equals sponsored, uh, and this will allow sites to get visibility without having to worry about manual actions. So I can imagine, obviously, it's quite disappointing <laughs> when someone from Google comes and rains on your parade like that. Um, if you look at the show notes uh, for this podcast, that's search.withcanda.co.uk. I'll provide a link to that tweet and as well to uh, a response from SEM Rush uh, that essentially just talks about the controversy they faced with the guest blog uh, post editorial and outreach service, uh, that they've currently uh, paused it. And it was, uh, in their view, kind of a, a misunderstanding. They're aware guest posts can cause manual penalties and they're sort of assuring people that we're not buying or selling links. Um, and this was kind of where I wanted to, to start. So this, this obviously generated a lot of discussion um, and people started talking again about guest posting as a, as a link building tactic. Google reaffirmed their post again, which I'll provide a link to in the show notes, uh, which they originally posted in 2017. And they titled it a reminder about links in large scale article campaigns. And I won't read it word for word, but essentially what they're saying in this is Google saying they're not discouraging these types of articles, because in many cases, they inform users, educate another site's audience or bring awareness to a cause or company. However, what does violate Google's guidelines on link schemes is when the main intent is to build links in a large scale way back to the author's site. And they give some factors when taken to the extreme can indicate an articles in violations, such as uh, stuffing keyword rich links to your site and your articles, having the articles published across many different sites, or alternatively having a large number of articles on few large different sites, using or hiring article writers that aren't knowledgeable about the topics they're writing on, and finally using the same or similar content across these articles. So what, what interested me actually about that advice uh, or that guidance from Google is they don't mention at all paying for links when they're talking about guest posting there. Um, you know, it seems they don't care whether you're kind of actually paying the host site. They're just saying if you're doing this on a large scale, it's bad. So this is so that's the background. And James, this is where I wanted to get your um, kind yeah. of opinion. And I think a, a place to start is, you know, I, I know you guys do more of the digital PR side of things. We'll cover that at the yeah. end of the show. So, First question for you is. Is, in your opinion, are there any other types of link building that are worth investing in in 2020 outside of digital PR? So stuff like Harrow, link reclamation. Absolutely, yeah, abs absolutely. I mean, I think whilst, I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, we are a digital PR agency, and digital PR I think makes up the majority of the link acquisition work we do. And but I think there's there's certainly other tactics that are, are very effective and a great example that actually we've been working on this past week with a client working with a, a graduate recruitment specialist. And one of our key preliminary tactics for those guys was saying, okay, actually we did a bit a large link intersect analysis with their competitors and identified that essentially the resource pages on the career sites of many universities are linking to their competitors, but not to those guys. These guys launched a great app and they, they do have a unique proposition, yet they weren't being linked to. So that's pretty much your, you know, your bog standard resource link building. And we, we do do a lot of this. You know, we do figure out how we can build links by placing our client or a piece of their content as a resource. And I think it's one of those tactics that's seen as 
sometimes the low, you know, almost the low hanging fruit, and it often gets overlooked, especially in sort of converse, public conversations. But again, if you are, be, you know, it, to me, it very much comes down to the purpose of link building and utilizing links to to add value. And my, my take has always been that you should be building links by adding value and you don't always need assets to do that. You know, if you are, a re, you know, if the business is a resource, if it adds value, in this case, students looking to go into graduate roles, there is great value in the service and the app these guys offer, then it's of real value as a resource to, in this case, universities. We've seen this work for removals companies from locals councils, that sort of thing. And I think that it's certainly one of the tactics that we always default to very, very early on in working with a client in that it takes time to put together interactive assets, data studies. They're certainly not your quick, quick win. And our take is to have this always on approach. You know, so we're always looking for, and you know, what I will say is that the majority of times we are being engaged by clients to build links. Yes, we are using digital PR as a tactic to do that. And we refer to it, you know, digital PR as helping us to build quality links at scale for our clients from relevant, topically relevant publications. But it's not, in you know, many cases, we are being engaged to build links to, to drive growth and support an SEO strategy. So it's looking for those quick wins. So resource link building, absolutely. Um, another almost quick win that we often do is we'll say, okay, if you're working with a PR team, and it's really common that we find clients are working with, say, ourselves on digital PR for, for link acquisition, but their PR team are also running more the traditional PR. But what we see a lot of the time there is that the PR teams will land brand mentions and they're not chasing those up. So again, for us, from a link building perspective, it's a really quick win. So a lot of the time we will say, what are your PR team doing? We will go and do that research piece, that analysis piece. And if we can show that, say, you know, when we start working with a client in the past three months, you've had X pieces of coverage that do not link that your PR team have landed. We'll open up that conversation. What are they doing? A lot of cases we will say, okay, we spent a lot of time figuring out the right approach to turning brand mentions into links. We will take on that as part of the, you know, the link building strategy. Um, Harrow, it's funny you should mention, I think we go in phases on this. It's Harrow's often cited as a really sort of low level entry point into almost PR driven. Now, our take is we, we do monitor it very closely. Um, same with things like journal request, but it's it's understanding when you should and shouldn't put yourself or your client forward. So we have a policy at Digital Loft on Harrow requests in that we will only reply if the client is actually an expert on that what i see all the time and we've we've run our requests to gain expert insight for various campaigns in the past and i think once you see the other side of it you get so much spam you see companies that are completely unrelated running a quick google search and essentially giving you a snapshot of what what comes up on the number one results as a response now we've learned over the years that if you want to be successful for harrow pick a very, very small subsect of the the requests that come in every day that are, you know, we, we say if the client is an expert on this. So I don't know, unless we work with clients in, say, the food sector. And, you know, we if there are questions on food, then we, we have a... We have a, you know, we have a client who has a chef director and we can go to them and get absolute bang on expert advice and insight, which can add real value, something that we couldn't just get from Google. And that's how you should be approaching Harrow requests and similar journal requests. 
if you are an expert, you can get some great links. I I remember sort of way back in 2013, 2014, when I was still freelancing, in, in the space of about a week, I landed a client who was a mortgage broker on Financial Times, Day in the Mail, Telegraph, all through Harrow and journal requests. What's happened in the sort of six, seven years since then is it's almost become... I don't know if you remember things like my blog guest, where it was it, it's almost become a spammy platform to many in many things, and I think there's got to be that level of are you really an expert? Should you really be responding to this? And if the answer is yes, then you can get some great some great links and great coverage from that. But if you are just trying to piggyback on an opportunity that you shouldn't really be commenting on, then you're just straight up wasting your time. So I think. An interesting point there maybe for people doing SEO in-house or company, SMEs looking to do it is that there is a lot of this, um, what we might call, you know, basic or bread and butter link building that SEO agencies are still doing that is effective, but not that many people talk about it because it's kind of not as sexy as the, you know, a really successful digital PR campaign with a nice interactive piece. It's not, you know, sometimes sort of as a... Uh, you know, it's amazing from the outside just to be like, yeah, we had a great resource. So we just emailed a bunch of people that linked to our competitors and they now link to us. And we, you know, we saw results from it. Yeah. The, one thing I wanted to, to mention there was uh, you talked about, um, and this has come up before working with PR teams where they're yeah. maybe getting brand mentions and they're not getting the link. And I'm going to take, take a stretch here because I, I think it was you. Uh, it might have been someone else. So I apologize if it was someone else. I think it was you I saw on Twitter that was talking about um, they were reaching out to a publication that had used some of their data and had mentioned the, the client but hadn't linked to it. Um, and they chased it up and asked if the asset could be linked because it was their data. And the response was that the author just deleted the whole mention. Yeah, that was us. That was us. Yeah, that was us. Yes, it was us. It was us. Yes. So I'm glad that I'm glad I got that right. So my my question there was, and I've talked to a lot of people about this because I've seen journalists as well. There's been a few times where I've seen a lot of journalists kind of complain about basically SEO people emailing them, just asking for links anytime they're mentioned, whether it's positive, whether it's negative. What's your view on how kind of aggressive, I guess is the right word, you should be with journalists, um, getting them to link to you when they've mentioned to you, you know, what kind of policies, guidelines do you have for that in terms of how, you know, if it's an old article, if it's a new one, where, where do you draw the line there? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think it's really, what's really interesting there is, I mean, I, I spoke over at Learn Inbound in Dublin last August, and my talk was on how to turn brand mentions into links. And essentially, you know, I so to, to, to get the data for that, I went and I spoke with on calls and, and face-to-face meetings with, I think, about 50, 55 journalists and editors at top-tier publications. And what came back, so I posed a question to, I mean, so we were mid-2019 then. My question to them was, what makes you guys link out in 2019? Very, very open-ended question. And what actually came back is that despite what some PRs and some SEOs think, most journalists aren't against linking out. Yes, there are sometimes a small number of publications who do have a no external link policy. They're, They're pretty few and far between. And what came back is that, the link has to add editorial value. It has to make sense for them to be linking out. Otherwise, why why would they? You know, and I think the the best example that I share in conference talks all the time was one of the editors at the Daily Mail. And he said that 
the he's usually happy to link it out when a piece contained or a page or a link contains extra value, but they will not, as a publication, that's the Daily Mail as a, a standard, will not link it out to a brand's homepage. The reason being that they are often pulled up on that being an advertorial in disguise and that a homepage link very, very, very rarely adds value to an article. And it was a really, really good point. It's actually something I'd never considered in the past. The challenges that journalists and their editors and the publication as a whole faces in terms of how does a link how does a link actually look to their readers? When you think about it from a homepage link, which again is often where a PR, you know, more traditional PR will start, they will go and chase homepage links. It doesn't add any value. And I think my take there is that if you are reaching out to try and turn brand mentions into links, there has to be some sort of editorial value there. Why should that link be in place? And I think, you know, we, we work it into campaigns right from day one. But to you know to address it as a wider topic, I think it's looking at it from that that perspective and that that angle on why should that link be there? And in certainly our approach to when we reach out to try and get a, a, a link added and a brand mention turned into a link, it's really looking at it from that case on if we can justify why that link makes sense to be there for their readers, for their audience. Then you will land. You will land that link. You know we've had top tip up. You know we've had the Guardian, the Telegraph, USA Today, all add links into articles very, very quickly. Once we can demonstrate what that value is to their to their readers, to their audience, and I think that's that's where it's often overlooked. In that a homepage link doesn't make sense. It doesn't add any value. You know a journalist can see, or their editor, or even their corrections desk can see straight through that. But when you can actually demonstrate what that value is, why that link makes sense and how it enhances their, their reader's experience, then you stand a much, much stronger chance of getting that brand mentioned turned into a link. That makes sense. So if we reverse a little bit, I want to talk briefly and specifically about guest posting. So of course. guest posting as a tactic, um, the, you know, the Google guidelines basically don't mention paid links but they say don't do it on a kind of mass scale so you know what are your thoughts on guest posting efficacy does it does it work um is there any case where it's worthwhile investing in because i certainly see lots of people still doing it absolutely and i think i think we all do and i think my my take on guest posting is that it's it's you should never approach any tactic as a, a do not do every tactic has its place in a in a campaign for somebody somewhere, you know. But when we talk specifically about guest posting, I mean, I, I look back to what I was doing in 2013, which was, you know, funny we should mention it again. It was using things like my blog guest post joint. And it was, you know, we all, once Penguin hit, we all sort of shifted away from pretty dodgy link building private blog networks, that, that sort of, those sorts of tactics. And I think as an industry, we then shifted to equally as spammy tactics but we tried to pass this off as, as guest posting. And, you know, if I look back to guest posts that I was involved in in 2013, and it was absolute garbage. And then obviously Matt Cutts at the time came out and sort of killed it and said, look, this, this will not work, this should not work. And I think fast forward to 2020, and my take on guest posting is links should not be the number one goal of guest posting. Now, I write for... Search Engine Journal, I write for the irony of it, SEM Rush blog. And 
as a marketer, I get great value from that. You know, it builds my personal brand. It gives me a platform to share great content. That That is guest posting. I am contributing content for somebody else's blog, somebody else's platform. And But I do that as an expert in the industry, sharing insights. The number one reason I am doing that is to build my personal brand, not for a link. If I land a link as a result of that, then so be it. That's great. But I think when you when you consider guest posting, it shouldn't be seen as a link building tactic. Why? Because actually it's when you approach it as a link building tactic, and my take is the reason that Google mentioned in their guidelines doing this at scale, it's because actually think on, you know, let's take the you know, the SEO industry as a, as a great example, you know, what I'm talking about writing in, is how many publication, quality publications are there that take guest contributions? Five, ten, probably. Yes, you know, you could go to agency blogs. You know, you could go down a tier. But there's there's probably, you know, five or ten solid publications. Take that to any industry, and you run out of opportunities very, very quickly. And I think that's where this comes from, this whole at scale. Uh, you know, guest posting at scale should be avoided. Because once you start to try and use guest posting as a tactic to scale up link building, the only way that can happen is the quality drops. You stop being selective on whose audiences you write for, whose audiences you, you're you're educating and sharing your insight knowledge. And it very quickly becomes, a, okay, we've, we've explored the opportunities at 5, 10, 20 sites. Now what we have to do is take a step away from what we're experts in and try and shoehorn our content into somewhere else. And I think if we think of guest posting like that, there are fantastic opportunities for experts and i will say experts not seo agencies ghostwriting for experts to create and share great content that positions them and their businesses as experts and it is a great tactic when approached with a mindset as if we get a link then great but the primary reason we're doing this isn't link building and this has been going on in the pr world for years um and i think that that's the mindset you've got to approach him because when you're trying to scale ultimately quality and topical relevancy and connection to the audience that's where it suffers and that's where you start you start almost doing it for the sake of it and that's that's where it starts to get dangerous so you mentioned um that one of the publications you write for is sem rush and i actually read an article yeah. uh, by you funnily enough uh last april or this this just gone april about toxic links so I think that's interesting to talk about in terms of things like um, like guest posting, guest articles. Of course. Uh, uh, if you've inherited a client, for instance, so we'll, we'll take uh, this hypothetical that you've inherited a client and they say, yeah, we did a whole bunch of guest posting uh, with a previous agency and you know, we'll say they haven't had any kind of manual action yet. Where how would you go about deciding uh, which, you know, where you draw the line with those guest posts on which are good, which are bad? How do you work out what is a toxic link? Absolutely. Uh, are there any particular tools you use? And if you can, on the end of that, what's your view on, you know, third party metrics? Because they obviously come in a lot. So when we're talking about links, so whether it's uh, like uh, Moz's uh, DA, Majestic TF, or so you, you use some of the Ahrefs metrics in your case studies, how, how do these all come into play? What of course, yeah. So I mean, in, in terms of the hypothetical solution of inheriting a client that has been 
using guest posts at scale, I mean, I think the number one question I, w- I would be either asking or trying to determine is actually where have these guest posts come from? So and I think the most common solution is that we see that these are guest posts that have been bought from one of the the few almost widespread guest post selling sites. There's you know there's there's probably three or four of them out there. Um, I'm saying, I'm not going to name names, but it's um, it's pretty common that you can start to see a trend. Now, what I will say is that I have been known to place orders with some of these guest post platforms, not on client sites solely on test sites so you can start to understand what are these sites selling so we can start to understand what what do these links look like and actually you know it's once you start to dig through a a client's link profile which is the first thing that we do um in almost the strategy piece when working with the client on link building it's i want to know where they've come from so some clients will be open and say well we bought them from x y or z others will say that you know they used an agency they weren't aware that it was a tactic they perhaps shouldn't have been engaging in so, I mean, I think number one is that if, if possible, I want to try and understand where these links have come from, because then you can start to see how they were acquired. In some cases, you know, you find that they say they were doing guest posting, but what they were actually really doing more of is, is PR and, you know, either an in-house PR team may have been doing almost expert profiling, you know, that one of their specialists was contributing articles. Now, my, my take there is, that actually, whether you're preparing a disavow file, whether you're auditing a link a link profile, you can't beat manual analysis and experience. I mean, I you know I know going back to sort of 2012, I will never forget spending tens, if not hundreds, of hours um, working through backlink audits on at the time pure, absolute pure spam. And I think, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I often say to those who are just joining the industry that perhaps the best level of education in SEO came in 2011, 2012, 2013, when you could still get away with spammy tactics and then almost overnight things changed. So actually getting, getting your hands dirty and auditing link profiles manually, and I think it comes back to that, you know, it's the same approach we take with digital PR and almost justifying the existence of a link. And... My personal take, the way I personally vet links in a link profile is, would you still want this link if Google didn't exist? So if links weren't a ranking factor at all, what value does this link have to the client? So a great example I can talk about from recently is we're working with a car finance brand and previously they had been buying links from one of these guest post platforms. And they had links to used cars for sale on finance with exact match text, number one flag. And they had links to bad credit car finance, et cetera. And they were on essentially mummy blogs. So they're not private blog networks, but they are very low quality. And actually, you know, my take is that some of these mummy blogs, as it were, uh, they're not too dissimilar to, to private blog networks that we were seeing in 2013, 2014, you know, badly done public blog networks. We should really be calling them. And, it's, to- it's topical relevance. It's could this link send referral traffic from a target audience? And that's probably my number one determinant as to whether a link should be disavowed or attempted removal alongside, yes, you know, the, you know, domain metrics, domain authority, domain rating, et cetera, play a part. But to me, you can't beat that manual analysis on what value does this bring to the client if we weren't simply looking from an SEO perspective. So 
analyzing, you know, going into Google Analytics, has have the have any of these links sent traffic? You know, what how does that traffic behave? You know, I think we have to go beyond simply looking at metrics because actually, you know, you can see and, and actually I'd, I I had an incident about a year ago where a client was advised by, so we were working on link building and they client had another, an SEO agency working on the technical and more the SEO strategy. And a piece of advice that came from the other agency was that they should be disavowing any links below Domain Authority 30. Now, to me, that's just pure idiocy. And it almost, yeah, and it's it's a very outdated metric on, you know, a very outdated approach on trying to sculpt a link profile in what you want. You can have lower domain authority sites. I mean, a great example is a, a, a you know, digital PR campaign that we launched a couple of weeks ago got picked up by on the on the company blog of a team of solicitors. Now, this was 100% topically related to the campaign. It made full sense. Their domain authority was like 22. You know, it was a local, it was a local solicitors who had seen the campaign from a piece of top-tier coverage, we assume, and they'd covered it as part of a news piece they were doing, and they linked out to it. So if we looked solely on domain authority, domain rating, then that link would have potentially been disavowed if you took that that mindset. And it's just, you know, that is a real link. It made sense in context. It was just on a, a low, you know, a low profile small business. That doesn't mean it's a bad link. You know, in, in many ways, that's a great link on the grounds that it was completely editorially placed. We didn't even reach out, you know, that that, that campaign was picked up from somewhere else and they worked it into a piece of content they were creating. Now using domain metrics like that, it's really, really dangerous. Um, you need to be considering the context of the link. And yes, it is, you know, if you are auditing a link profile and taking decisions, you know, you have to use, you know, if, if a link comes in and it is domain authority or domain rating zero, they are typically always scraper sites. Now they're probably being ignored anyway. It's the, to me, those links which are, Seen, seen as potential manipulation. So if they have an exact match anchor text to a commercial page, that's where I would always start and try and figure out, okay, is this is this a paid post? Is this manipulative? And that's where I would start to, you know, to place a disavow file. Um, but does, you know, there's a lot of people talking about whether you should or shouldn't disavow at the moment. My take is that, yes, you, sh- you still should um, if there is almost a blatant attempt at manipulation through link building. If these are scraper sites which we see we all see tens of they're being ignored you know we're in 2020 you know google isn't that daft you know they are we don't need to be going to put in every scraper site that we see come through into a disavow file i don't believe but if there is a an obvious attempt at manipulation then that's what should go into a disavow file that was actually going to be my next question kind of how proactive uh, you are or if you're an advocate of kind of proactive disavow use because of, I've seen a lot of differing opinions on that and I've seen kind of Google's uh, line has always been that they haven't apparently seen a case where there's been for instance like negative SEO where someone's had to use disavow and then there's the argument that if Google has decided the link's bad anyway, it's probably ignoring it unless it's yeah, seeing like this aggressive manipulative pattern, which has sometimes made me think, well, you know, the, the two instances there is either they are ignoring it already, which is kind of fine, you know, yeah. not getting any benefit from it. Or if they're, if it is, you know, say like a, like a scraper site or something and Google hasn't, you know, twigged that it's low quality that, um, 
that you know you would get some tiny bit of benefit from it and disavowing would take away from that but then to add to the complexity i did see uh, about a year later google saying that um they kind of it seems they they weigh up the risk of your link profile and use that to determine if they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt for like the on the fence stuff. So if you've got a super clean link profile and then you've got a few of these dodgy links, they're like, well, okay, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Whereas if you've got, you know, a lot of crap, basically the other kind of on the fence ones, um, you know, they're going to say, well, we're probably sort of, you know, from a probability point of view, we're going to guess these are, these are bad as well. So I think it's really interesting and there's maybe not a correct answer and it does come down to sort of experience. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there is necessarily a a right or wrong answer on it. I think you've got to look, you know, the history of a site to me, you know, that's the number one thing I want to know what tactics have been used to build links, not just now, you know, one of the questions I often ask is, did you, you know, have you had a penalty in the past? Have you been negatively affected by Penguin? Did you have a manual? Because these are, you know, these are all considerations, you know, I mean, I, I remember the days of manual penalties that, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of time was spent by, by I think most of us, you know, recovering clients from manual penalties, you know, removing manual penalties seven or eight years ago. And it always came back then, you know, it's my take is that these things stick around a long time. You know, you've lost, you know, even if, you know, if you disavow, you've lost some of that link equity that was helping you to rank but it it all comes back to that history as you say if there's a very small handful of potentially manipulative links in an otherwise great link profile i don't believe you need to waste your time but if you are working with a site that has a history of being hit by either you know penguin back in the day or core algorithm updates and you know the the gut feel is that that is related to to web spam and i think you know you it doesn't take long you know I've worked with clients in the past who they claim they're they're whiter than white when it comes to link building. You know they're not, and you know I think it's it does come with experience. You know I I often say you know you I can I can spot a paid link pretty quickly. You know there are common signs. Yes, you know there are there are people who can get them through who can disguise them very well. But I think there are common signs when you analyze any link source that is potentially questionable, that with experience, you can determine whether that's a, a, a manipulated link or not. And again, you know, coming back to exact match anchor text, you know, that's one of the big, that's one of the big ones. It's, you know, exact match anchor text and topical relevancy. You know, if you are a car finance broker and you are getting links from mummy blogs that where the article has nothing to do with car finance, it is obvious where that's come from. Nobody writes like that naturally. And that link has absolutely no value to the article. So it's a pretty good indication that that's been paid for. So my take there would be to, to put that link, you know, that domain through a disavow file, um, almost out of best practice in that if a, if, a, you know, if a site hasn't been negatively affected with, with a, a penalty, the manual or algorithmically, then there's a good chance it is being ignored, but you're probably going to do no harm because, you know, Worst case scenario, it's going to have a negative impact in the future. Best case scenario, it's being ignored. So with everything we've talked about so far, obviously digital our focus is mainly you're saying on, on the like more digital PR side. Yeah. Do you want to talk us through your the process you go through with the average client and and what that looks like? Uh, because I yeah. think you know a lot, a lot of SMEs we speak to, and, you know, bigger businesses when we've done this kind of work as well, um, it's still even in 2020 seems kind of new to them in that 
there there normally seems to be two functions I've encountered internally, which is there's like content people that just kind of write content and it tends to be, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's okay written content, but it's not, there's no narrative. There's no story there that anyone is particularly interested in. Um, and then there's the PR side, as you said, which isn't quite fulfilling that function. Um, so, so how do you go about and, and what, what kind of, so I'm interested in what's the rough process you take with clients and where are you spending kind of the time with them to to make a successful campaign? Of course. So, I mean, I think the, the number one factor of digital PR, so I mean, essentially, you know, to, to give an overview on, on digital PR really from our take as a, as a tactic, we, we tell stories to the press to land great links and coverage, hopefully at scale. So essentially it starts with coming up with those stories. And, you know, we, we take no shame in, in admitting that, you know, we, we approach digital PR story first. So the amount of ideation sessions that I've sat, sat in in the past where somebody goes, should we create an infographic? Should we launch a calculator? Should we do an interactive asset? Their formats, not stories. Journalists want stories. They want headlines. They actually don't care about your assets in many cases. And this has been a almost an issue I've had for, for quite some time in that when you approach things format first, you go into the ideation process with such a narrow mindset because you are thinking, what can we create an infographic on? What can we build that's a calculator, that's a tool? Whereas our take is that Going story first means that we're always thinking right from day one, what are those headlines? So it all starts with coming up with a great idea. And coming up with a great idea to us, you've got to find those seed ideas of inspiration. So that might be a data set. That might be something that's being discussed in in another article that you could build a campaign around. It might be clients' own data. It might be questions that are being asked online. Whenever we launch a campaign to come up with maybe four or five concepts. So when we work with, say, you know, so if we launch a single campaign to, we've probably put forward four to five ideas and concepts to the client that we fully validated. So by that, I mean, we've come up with maybe 40 to 60 seed ideas individually as team members, and then we group together to validate these concepts. So that's taking it from a seed idea, which could be, we found a great data set on X, Y, or Z. We saw a great discussion on social media around this, or we saw an article that had a really great quoting about X, X, Y, or Z, as an example. And then we group together as a team and we start saying, okay, well, how can we turn that into a great campaign? So number one is what's the headline? If we don't, if we can't prove what a headline is and three or four variants of a headline that we could see running on a top 10 newspaper, then that's what we've got to figure out first. We need to know that there is a pool of journalists out there. Another big mistake is not knowing who you're going to pitch it to. Even before we get anywhere near running with a campaign, we need to know what's the what's the size of the pool that we could pitch that into. How does it hook to the client? You know, what we don't want is for someone, a, a journalist, to come back and say, "Please, can you just explain why this client, this brand, has launched this piece of content?" You know, that's often a blatant attempt to to just you know to land links through doing something almost unrelated you need to be creating content that topically aligns and that you can almost position as experts on and then only then once we've got concepts and validated concepts and stories do we start to think about the format so we take a, a you know a very open opinion on 
we use the right format to tell the story. We still do a lot of static visuals. We do reports which are hosted on our client's blog, you know, almost long-form pieces of content. We do, we do do interactive assets. We do build calculators. But we look for the most suitable format to tell the story. And again, it comes from not being afraid to go simple. You know, if we don't need to launch a, a big fancy interactive asset, why would we put the resources into that when that that budgeted time may allow you to launch two simpler assets? You know, it's all about being effective with resources and not just defaulting to something big and fancy. And I think, you know, the pan, you know, the recent pandemic has shown that, you know, we've had some great success pitching our expert opinion, you know, almost without an asset or with, with tips and advice provided on a simple blog post. I think, you know, it's been a real turning point for the PR industry is that, you know, the digital PR industry at least, which I think has proven to a lot of us that it is story first and it's making that content relatable, not just jumping straight to a big fancy asset that, that takes tens of hours to design, tens of hours to develop. And yeah, it's thinking that it's story first. James, we're, we're already at 40 minutes. I know, really I know, I know, I know. Um, I've, I've got one question. Uh, I'm going to give you give you a tricky question to finish on. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'd like to get your thoughts on if it's possible to put a financial value on links. And I ask this because I've seen some agencies that specialize in link building. Um, they charge per link and they use, in those cases, third-party metrics to kind of give some kind of parameter for that. And I've seen other agencies, actually, that are heavily digital PR agencies um, that essentially just guarantee a certain number of links from campaigns. So they say, you know, if we do a campaign and it flops, we will just do you another one until we get these links, which to me, it says, you know, there's some money being paid to them. They're guaranteeing a certain amount of links. So they've obviously got some kind of idea of what the value of these links are. So, of course, you know, from an outside view, how on earth do you put a value on a link? It's very, very difficult. I mean, I think it's my, my take here is that no two links are valued the same. You know, when you start to place a single value on a link, it gets, it starts to get very, very messy on the fact that, you could take a link that drives, you know, I mean, we, we fairly regularly, you know, see links on top tier publications that drive a thousand referral hits, 2000 referral hits. But then again, that's what does that mean? You know, what does that traffic then do? You know, I go back two, three years and we launched a campaign for, sounds really boring, but a parcel forwarding company. We did a bit, a big, deep dive into their data and we identified that about 30% of our shipments were sneakers. It was essentially Americans buying limited edition sneakers from the UK and shipping them over to America. We ran a, a pretty successful campaign on around sneakers to target that audience and to raise that awareness. And the actual conversions that came in when we took the campaign cost, the the conversion, the cost per conversion from our campaign fee came in at half what a, an already very well-optimized PPC campaign was because we targeted the audience correctly. Now, that's almost a rare instance, but I think it goes to show that the conversions there didn't necessarily come from the top-tier publications. Placing a value on a link is very, very difficult, and I must admit we are, I think we're quite aligned on that we would say, here's a minimum KPI. If we don't hit this minimum KPI, then 
we will replace the campaign, but we try to band it within that. So we will band it and give example publications. So that is often using domain rating or Trustflow. And it's saying we will commit to a KPI of X number of links of this quality. Um, I think it's the best the best scenario in most cases. You can get really complex. Obviously, you know, certain agencies now have their own link metrics. And it does, it gets really confusing because we have to talk in common language. And still to this day, you know, marketing directors, etc., they are familiar with domain authority. You know, my take is that it wouldn't necessarily be my metric of choice, but we have to talk in a language. And, but I think also, you know, comparing it to link buying is really dangerous. We have to almost admit that digital PR drives brand value, you know, and brand is a, you know, various elements of brand are a ranking factor. And so to give a a very simple answer, you know, I think it is really difficult to to place a value on a link and the value of that link can be very different. You know, the value of a link on one publication could be very different to two different businesses. And it's having those conversations with clients to understand, is this, you know, is your goal straight up SEO? Are you, you know, are you really using this as a link building tactic or are you looking to build your brand? You know, if you can demonstrate, and we, we see this all the time, a spike in brand searches, you know, an increase in Google trends for the brand searches, then that's additional value, but it's it's hard to quantify um, and put that into a, a cost per link. I'm really impressed at that answer and especially impressed with bonus points that you didn't say. I didn't hear you say it depends. I didn't. I don't think I did. I don't think I did. <laughs> Thank James. Thank you so much for your time. This Thank has been that. really fun. Yeah, great. Thank you for sharing no your knowledge with us. No worries. Thanks for having me. So Search with Canada will be back next on Monday, the 15th of June. You can get the transcription of this episode, the links to the articles uh, that we've mentioned at search.withcanda.co.uk. As usual, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe and I hope you'll all tune in next week.